Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the crowning moment by May McHenry. This is first published and only published in The Black Cat, October 1898. Uh, there's very little about May McHenry on the internet. Um, I couldn't find a uh, an obituary that would uh, be trustable. Um, but I do have a list of her writings, and this is her very first published story, as far as we can tell. Uh, and she had 11 totaling uh, 11 stories uh, up to 1914. Um, and they were in the big magazines, Collier's, McClure's, Muncie's. I think there was a New England magazine in there. And uh, based on this story alone, I would say I'm going to want to seek out some of her other stuff because this is pretty great writing. And it's so <laughs> short. I can't believe how short it is. But uh, it's simple. Um. And I would love for you to read it to us, and then I would love to talk about why why this story is so cool. I'd love to, too. And I just have to ask, I also found untrustworthy uh, obituaries. Mm-hmm. And untrustworthy. Did you find out anything besides Nothing. her publication? Nothing. Nothing. It's, so it, for all we know, Mae McHenry is an alien who came down <sighs> and put manuscripts in mailboxes and sent them to editors. The only proviso I would put on that is... A, a very entertaining alien because uh, <laughs> this is a, a, a very simple story, but I found myself marveling at it. Um, and I, uh, let's talk about why after, let's do it. After you we read, will. To, read it for us. All righty. The crowning moment by May McHenry. Daniel Armand had never had a very easy time of it in his 37 years of knocking about the world But his was that philosophy of which a diluted flavor filters through to the submerged 1920ths in such classics as Every Dog Has His Day and It's a Long Lane That Has No Turn. Armand never lost his faith in ultimate possibilities. He expected to have his share of this world's offerings of bliss as well as of woe, and he kept himself in training to meet either exigency. When the good fortune began to materialize down in the Argentine Republic, and he saw that he would be able to lift the mortgage a father's folly had placed on a son's career and still have something left over for the foundation of a future for himself and another, Daniel Armand knew what came next. Five minutes after the completion of the deal in Hyde's, he was writing to Ernestine Wilson of East Aurora, New York. Another man might have waited to see the girl again after three years, to test, to make sure, but to wait was not Daniel Armand's nature. He would have telegraphed his proposal had it been possible to do so. He laughed a little himself at the fervor of his love letter. But the best of it is, I mean every word of it, and infinitely more, he added across the top of the sheet. And then when the answer came, the whimsical, indirect answer that told him so plainly all he wanted to know, he laughed again, 
Being alone with the blinds down, he raised the dainty sheet and kissed it warmly. You damn fool, you have it bad, he grinned as he caught himself in this act of fatuous tenderness in the sage green looking glass. Below the surface, he was humbly and devoutly thankful that such capacity to have it bad survived in him. The man who had borne the unmitigated bad luck of many years with stoical serenity followed an epicurean instinct in making the most of his happiness. When he started for New York on the steamship Havana, he took to himself the flattering unction that there was not another man on board the vessel to whom life meant as much as it meant to him. Why, it was marvelous with what richness and fullness of promise existence was opening up for him. What joy, what high thoughts, what noble purposes. He seemed lifted to a higher spiritual plane simply because there had been a rise in leather and a girl promised to be kind. I tell you, it is a great thing to fall in love with the right kind of woman, the right kind of way. He confided to his friend, the Havana's captain, as they paced the deck under the stars of the southern sky. All the long, languorous days, not to mention the greater part of the wondrously beautiful nights of the tropical seas, were appropriately employed by the happy lover in thinking of her. The marvelous violet of her eyes under their enticing dark lashes, the curve of her cheek, the irresistible hollow made for kisses at the base of her sound white throat, the grace and charm and the subtle maddening sweetness of her. Like rainbow-hued hummingbirds over honeysuckle blossoms, his thoughts kept darting and hovering in anticipation of that moment when she and he all the rest of the world blotted out, should stand together in the little parlor at East Aurora. That would be the crowning moment when he should hold all his happiness and his hopes embodied in just her close, close in his arms. More than once as he leaned against the steamer's rail in the passionately pulsing darkness, his arms stretched out to grasp the mocking night breeze. On such occasion, he would catch himself, turn on his heel with a soft oath, and charge swiftly for the smoking room. There he would demonstrate his sanity to his own satisfaction by winning neat little piles of gold from the poker-playing coffee merchant from Rio Janeiro. In case the poker should not be sufficient check on the spirit of poetry within him, he would follow it up by an aridly recondite scientific discussion with the fossiliferous Harvard professor. The fifth night out, they were somewhere in the latitude of the Bahamas. That night, the aridly recondite discussion was especially engrossing. Long after midnight in the deserted saloon, the man of learning was discoursing upon the Silurian age, and the absent-minded Arment was pretending to listen. When the shock came, the crashing, ripping shock, followed by a reeling shiver from stem to stern of the big steamer, on deck they found the vessel enveloped in a dense white fog like a winding sheet. For an instant, a huge dark hull appeared beside the Havana, then was swallowed in the fog while a wail of awful despair floated back. Armand realized that there had been a collision 
and that two vessels were likely to go down to the bottom before daybreak. There was none of the confusion, the shrieks and shouts and ravings we read of in descriptions of ships sinking in mid-ocean. There was the sharp, quick command, clear the lifeboats, the creaking of rope, the shuffling of men's feet. But with the stopping of the machinery, a sinister silence seemed to hang over the doomed steamer. The Havana listed helplessly to starboard and settled rapidly in the spectral gray light. The dazed and terror-stricken passengers huddled in speechless groups about the companionways. It was like an evil dream. And Armand went about like a man in a dream, lending a hand at the ropes, helping women with little children. Through it all, he was thinking of Ernestine. How she would cling to him, how her sweet face would quiver and her eyes widen and darken when he should tell of the peril of the solemn and awful moment when a ship went down in the fog. When the time came, he took his place in the boat. It was the last boat, and it was crowded to the utmost capacity. The officers of the Havana had done what they could. They had filled the other boats with women and passengers. Now it was for a man to save himself if he could. They were ready to cast off when Armand, glancing back, saw a woman standing near him at the steamer's rail, her white, dazed face turned upward in prayer. The deck of the Havana was almost on a level with the water by that time, and the higher waves were dashing across it. To step back from the boat to the wave-washed deck was but the work of an instant. Daniel Armand swung the woman over the taffrail and placed her gently on the seat he had left. Then he swiftly cast off the overladen boat and stood watching the gray gulf widen between him and it. Safe outside the maelstrom created by the sinking steamer, the party in the boat paused and looked back. Where the Havana had been was nothing but white fog Settling over the water like a pall. So, when I started reading this story originally, um, I I thought it was going to be a joke. I thought because it, there's a lot of humor in the story and self-reflective uh, laughing and such. So I thought you know he's going to get to New York and he's going to marry that girl, uh, and something some joke will happen. Or he's going to meet the girl and uh, she's already married. Or so I, I figured it was all going to be a joke. So this is like a, a, a story derailed story <laughs> in a certain sense. <laughs> um, and it, it, the crowning moment, the title, is actually called out. Um, it is very interesting to me that this story is so uh, self-conscious. The author uh, actually says, like we read about... <laughs> Uh, ships crashing in the uh, mid-ocean. There's nothing like that that we read about. So the authors, including us in this, so the story is self-conscious of it being a story. He's self-conscious of the letter he's writing to this girl. Uh, he says, he looks in the mirror and he says, you've got it bad. <laughs> he he is joyful. This character is joyful and reflecting on the fact that he's joyful and then the story that i was expecting <clears throat> it's not there it's he doesn't get it to new york and so we're left with that f- question of the title what is the crowning moment uh well she's never going to get to see he, he th- right up to the end of the story he, he's thinking 
oh, I'm going to be able to tell her about this experience we had, and it's going to make for some great parlor room conversation, and won't that be fun and funny? Delightful, in fact. Just like the delight I have in telling this coffee merchant from Rio de Janeiro and the ship's captain. And and think about the story. Nobody did anything wrong, right? He didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't deserve to be punished. The captain didn't, you know, screw up. It was two ships in the middle of the ocean hitting each other because of the fog. And I started noticing on rereading all of the uh, imagery with regards to air. There's literal air. There's smoke. There's the arid professor from Harvard talking about the Silurian <laughs> age. Um, there's the steam of the steamer. There's the mist. There's the f- fog of the fog. And there's also the fog of the, st- of the story in that I was caught up with this great character, Daniel Armand, who I'm very in in the pocket of throughout the story uh, thinking that, you know, we can make our plans and we can see them come through. If we just persevere, you know, every dog has his day. <laughs> that crowning mm-hmm. moment for this dog is, um, is not one that anybody will really see unless, you know, one of those passengers is going to say, Oh, that man helped me into the boat. And yeah, right. Uh, it, it, the ship's officers, didn't screw up. Nobody screwed up. And yet, he doesn't get to have that crowning moment, or maybe he did. And that, you know, a life of preparation and a life of good cheer and a life of, uh, you know, careful preparation uh, resulted in him doing the best he could in the ba- worst circumstances. It's a very interesting and philosophical and very light and airy story. But it has a heft to it for all of that. Oh, I agree with you very much, Jesse. Very much. A couple of slight cavils, I suppose. But mm-hmm. but in general, I, I think you're pointing to something that's really powerful about the way in which this story is is thought out, clearly thought out in advance, so that when we do reread it, as you have, we notice things. That very first paragraph is telling us that he's prepared for both the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. And so this crowning moment isn't the crowning moment explicitly, but the crowning moment implicitly. It's like, you know, Sidney Carton at the end of The Tale of Two Cities. There's a far, far better fate I go to than I have ever known before. Mm. Because he is sacrificing himself for for the lovers. Um, and that's what... He, what Daniel Armand is doing is sacrificing himself uh, because, after all, women and children should go first. I mean, he is a romantic. He's got it bad. Mm-hmm. And he actually admires himself for having it bad. The, the, 19, the 19th part of the 20th, mm. um, I, at first I thought, mm, does that mean, you know, the submerged 19th, 20th, 1920th? Mm-hmm. Um, did that mean, well, you know— Something became conscious, the idea that we only use 10% of our brain. Yeah. But no, it's not. I think it's the modern equivalent of the 1% mm. versus the 99%. Most people don't realize the, what it means to have money and to live with money. And suddenly he – this is a story about capitalism, among other yep. things. And it's it's the persistence of idealism within capitalism – 
that makes Daniel Arment so so wonderful. He is armed by his discipline preparing him for the, both the good and the bad against being in the lion's den. Yep. Right? <laughs> um, you know, Daniel Arment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and although she is flippant, she has somehow waited for him, his Ernestine. Mm-hmm. Um, the names here are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, we're told that he, so my two little cavils, I, I don't think that um, we're supposed to think that um, Daniel is contemplating having a good laugh over this with his uh, with Ernestine. I think that when it says, and he he foresees her eyes darkening, mm. I think she's going to be worried. She's going to be worried, and she's going to she is going to also feel the 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 tragedy because many many people will be badly affected by this. Um, it's not a happy. Thing that the ship sank, but she'll be so grateful that he he survived. So I, and also if I may add to your very perceptive um, catalog of the uses of of air and so on in the atmospherics of this story, the very last word of the story at the very last line, right? Safe outside the maelstrom created by the sinking steamer, the party on the boat paused and looked back. Where the Havana had been was nothing but white fog settling over the water like a pall. Mm. And in fact, one of the definitions of the word pall, not the one we are used, we use the most statistically, is in fact a dark cloud or a covering of smoke, dust, or similar matter. A dark cloud like, like the like the pall that you wrap a corpse in oh, yeah. and yet we're told here that it's a white fog settling like a pall because although this is a shroud for Daniel there is something pure and beautiful about his act this is his crowning moment as you say it's a very self-conscious story so uh, I, I think it repays uh, reading it, it gives us a sense that there is an underlying um, tension between the necessities of having wealth, having you know stuff, having resources, and the idealism. You know, why would we want to live at all if not to share with others, to share the company of others, to serve others? Um, that's to to finally in the last moment recognized that without even thinking, he dashed over the Mm -hmm. taffrail, right? Without even thinking, when it comes to those two, we know which one counts. Daniel knows which one counted. Um, So as I look back through the story, I see a lot of other things that are hidden in there. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, um, where does Ernestine live? She lives in East Aurora. I noticed that. that. (laughs) Right, it's the dawn. Mm-hmm. It's the dawn. It also happens to be a suburb of Buffalo, New York. So when it says the ship started from New- from New York, what it really means is New York City. Mm-hmm. He went from wherever he lives, somewhere in upstate New York, um, down to New York City to catch the ship that's going to go down um, to the Argentine Republic. Mm-hmm. Now, 
by using that older phrase, we just call it Argentina nowadays, mm -hmm. but by calling it the Argentine Republic, we're reminded of the fact that once upon a time, people called it for short, the Argentine, which is a word that means the place of silver. Silverland. Exactly. And it, it's, it's all about, you know, the Benjamins, as mm -hmm. they say, how much money do you have? On the ship, there are three different people that Daniel meets. The captain, the one who is in control of his world, is his friend. Mm -hmm. And they pace together amiably on a daily basis. Clearly, they weren't friends to, before that. There's no reason to suppose they knew, were acquainted. But the captain somehow becomes attracted to Daniel and vice versa. That's their reaction relation. There is also the Argentine uh, uh, Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Uh, Although it left out the D, it just it called it Rio de Janeiro in the text. Right. But you're right. I didn't yeah. notice that. Yeah, um, and 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 he's a merchant who's been making a lot of money, um, and Daniel consistently wins from him. Yep, right. A small pile Neat of gold. Little piles. Yes. So for Daniel, it turns out it's actually easy to get money if the conditions work their their way around. Now. He's going to, in fact, get money. He feels elated when there's a rise in the price of leather because, um, you know, he has signed this contract. It's very interesting to me that Argentina, the silver land, as you call it, mm -hmm. is a place where you can make it on skin. Right. It's all superficial, the wealth of Argentina. I don't mean in reality. I mean as expressed mm -hmm. subliminally in this story. Now, so we get three stereotypes. One, the captain, who is the master of all he surveys and is the natural friend of Daniel. We get the merchant, someone who is defined only by wanting money. And he loses to Daniel consistently. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make Daniel particularly happy. He spends time listening to the fossiliferous Harvard <laughs> professor, right? someone who is in the process of becoming a fossil himself. But, you know, I don't know anything about May McHenry, as, as we've said before, but she, supposing that May McHenry is really female, mm -hmm. she tells us that the particularly dry uh, lecture that passes for conversation in the instance that is the time when the ship is about to, ha just before there is the, the fatal collision, mm -hmm. it's a lecture, dis it was the man of learning was discoursing upon the Silurian age. So I asked myself, why the Silurian age? Mm -hmm. Why not the Jurassic age? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen other works that, that pin us down to one age or another. And it turns out the Silurian age is very interesting. It is. Oh, you've also gone this way. Maybe uh, I should let you. No, pick no, up I, 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 I'm. I, I noted that it was it was the Silurian age, and what I remember of the Silurian age is is basically, it's when there's a flourishing life in the ocean, and no, okay, no. If I'm, it's I may a very be long time ago. It's a very long time ago. It's about 440 million years ago. Yeah, I mean, like half a billion extends, years ago. <laughs> right, and it, and it extends over. But the Silurian Age begins at one of the great extinctions. It is the great extinction that apparently wipes out something like 60% of the marine species. 
And from that moment on, what happens in the Silurian age is, for the first time, there is terrestrial life. Ah. Plants come out onto this, onto the land. Certain arthropods make it onto land. Life on land is established by this extinction of life in the sea. Oh. Isn't that neat? Interesting. Daniel Arment dies, and that woman, who can, of course, have children, that woman gets away from the ship and presumably will get to land. I mean, Argentina has a name that stands for money. The Silurian Age stands for a particular act in a long, slow sense in the geologic movements of life on Earth. And Mae McHenry has all of that in here. So I read this and I think it's a man of learning who has said this. Daniel Armand in his own way, not on the way to being a fossil, but perhaps because he's on his way to being dead, is a man of learning because he understands so much about what's really important. Your analysis, your observations, Jesse, about this being a self-conscious story and Daniel being self-conscious, I think work hand in hand with this idea that there is a kind of learning that's more important than, you know, numbers, Mm. just as there is a kind of interaction that's more important than commerce. And to, to create by his life such a narrative that is a crowning moment. Agreed. There's there's um, uh, a measure of of self reflection at every point in this story. It's so interesting. The man who had borne the unmitigated bad luck of many years with stoical serenity followed an Epicurean instinct. These are two different philosophies, but he mm-hmm. does both. When he catches himself being too uh sick with love he says man you've got it bad when he starts uh you know overflowing with ebullience about his win at the poker table he says no no i must now go and talk to the dry professor <laughs> right right and he's he, he the way he talks about these uh this uh, aridly recondite scientific discussion it makes it sound like he's bored but he isn't He's taking the measure late into the night because it was especially engrossing. This is a man who knows that... uh, I I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about like um, working for a purpose that isn't just for you, which is what happens at the end. That's actually what we do with this podcast, Eric. You and I (laughs) have fun doing it, but we're not doing it for fun because if we were... We wouldn't be recording it. We wouldn't have Scott editing it. We wouldn't be putting it up and putting up the PDFs. We do this because it's the right thing to do. People will appreciate it. And that is very self-reflective. That's, this is a story that is built for a podcast like this. It's, it's very short, very simple, and it is very deep. Oh, that's very good, Jesse. I would point out, though, one important difference. Daniel Armand 
dies in his story. We don't die <laughs> in this podcast. And it's a good thing, too, because there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.